welcome to But It Is Rocket Science. Unfortunately, Hannah can't be with us here today. Anybody who's panicking that they have to listen to just me talk for the next hour, don't worry. You don't have to. We have a guest. My friend from Melanie is here. Hello. Yay! I'm here. No, we are not in the same room. We are safely no. social distancing. And so Melanie's specialty is vibration. I don't know. What's another fancy word for specialty? A niche? That's no, a good one. I, that's uh, a good one. It is kind of a niche situation. They always forget about us, but then we're the biggest troublemakers. Oh, everything you are. vibrates. <laughs> so Melanie, I have a very traditional path into engineering. I was an engineering major right out of college. My dad is an engineer. My brother is also an engineer. Oh <laughs> Neither of us very ventured very far from the tree. Yeah. You actually have a much more interesting story, if you'd be willing to share that with everyone. Sure. I mean, where do we even start, right? I didn't really know what I wanted to do for most of my life. I was never good at math and physics. I was actually very terrible at it. Feeling ninth grade kind of terrible, you know? Like just- oh, man. I think so many people, and it especially impacts women, they feel like they're not good enough yeah. at math and science to go into a field like this. You probably are. You can do this. Yeah. What I realized later in life is that I just had really terrible math teachers. And I was 17, 16, 17, and I really had different things in mind than math and physics. I grew up in Germany. I was was drinking heavily between the age of 13 and 17 and a half. That is like where all the prime math stuff happens, I guess. I, I grew up in Germany, but I ended up moving to the States for the first time in my early 20s. Still wanted to become a children's psychologist at the time. Were you born in Germany? Uh, no, I was born in Chicago, but um, my, oh. mom, my mom's German. I was raised in Germany. Yeah, I eventually, I, I don't even know what happened. This was a long time ago. So yeah, so it took me a while and I started like touring with bands, being Which merch is girl. really cool. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is fun, especially when you're yeah. still younger and stuff. But unless you actually end up being able to break into the industry and make a living off of it properly, it just becomes very difficult. And like, I went to audio engineering school for live events and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, after I decided I'm too empathetic to ever be a psychologist, the next step was babysitting bands on tour. Also hard. (laughs) At least, yes. Yes, it really was. Trying to wrangle a bunch of guys, driving through the night, all of that stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I tried for 10 years, almost 10 years, I think, to break into that industry. And just with uh, many other industries, it's just very male dominated. Yeah. It was just the, the nature and still is the nature of the industry. And there's very few women that actually make it. Um, yeah. I mean, proportional to, to men, obviously. Yeah. So at some point, well, I just kind of had to give up, redirect my life yeah. so I was gonna say I don't think you gave up <laughs> no no I think I made the right choice in the end <laughs> no um and then I don't know I was always good with kids I worked at daycares I was always a nanny on the side somehow so when I moved to I moved to so many I lived in like 12 cities in 12 years across wow. like three different countries yeah I moved an average like every 11 to 12 months and uh just like after 12 years you're like all right you know like you need to just find a spot find a spot yeah I don't know. I've just so many different places. Wow. Um, so when I decided, I'm like, I need to just settle. I need to just settle somewhere and like stay somewhere and figure stuff out. I became a nanny with this really lovely family that I'm still friends with and currently live with. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I started part-time raising their daughter. It's also a very lovely little child now. She's not so little anymore. She's eight now. Oh, that's uh, still little. Well, she was 14 months when I started. She was so okay. tiny. She was a relatively not so little anymore. Yeah, no. Wow. Was, yeah. That's so it sweet. It happened so fast. I know. So I don't know. After a while, I'm, 
I don't know, the reason I ever started reading up on physics books and stuff like that, like I've been reading physics books for fun on the side, kind of on the down low. I didn't ever told anyone because everyone would be like, why are you reading a physics textbook for fun? Like, I don't get it. I'm like, I don't, I don't know why. Get it. But yes. And like the only reason I ever started reading up on it is like I watched Johnny Darko back in like what, yes, 2000, with Jake, little Jake Gyllenhaal. Little Jake Gyllenhaal. I was still terrible at math and physics back then. And, uh, and I remember watching that movie and just being so fascinated by this movie. And I don't even like sci-fi movies. I was never into that stuff. Yeah, yes. out there, people, watch Donnie Darko. It's a great movie. Yeah. They mention um, two books in that movie. One was The Philosophy of Time Travel by Roberta Sparrow, which was like a lady, uh, Grandma Death in the movie. Yeah, I yeah. forgot about that. I should yes. go watch that again. That's you a should. great movie. You probably <laughs> will tonight after this. Yeah, recording. I probably will. Yeah, that's yes. a good one. That and so, um, um, October Sky. Are my... uh, I watched that way later after because I didn't know about it. I, I went on, I was going to say Google, but I Yahoo did yeah. because Google wasn't a thing yet. And then it was like, ask <laughs> Jeeves. Do you remember yes, that? <laughs> yes. So I Yahooed Roberta yep. Sparrow. And uh, unfortunately, it was not a real book. But no. they also, no, they also mentioned A Brief History of Time by Mr. Stephen Hawking. That one yes. was a real book. That one yes, was a real I'm... book. It's, it's a very non-traditional, this got me into STEM book. But yeah, so I bought the, the Brief History of Time and I just, yes. like, what, what, time travel without a DeLorean? What? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, not that the DeLorean makes any sense if no, you think about but it, but... It's yeah, also called so Back to the Future, which makes no sense, because... <laughs> no, it doesn't. None if the second one was called Back to the Future, it would make sense, because you would be going Back to the Future, but the first <laughs> one is called Back to the Future, and I don't I get it. <laughs> Luckily, there was a two and three, so maybe it yeah, made sense. Yeah, so uh, it came together. Yes. But that's uh, so cool. And then you yeah. went to... You actually didn't go to engineering school, engineering college, until you were a little bit older. Yeah, so I started reading physics books after I got that book just for fun, and I started getting into it, you know. I don't know. And then I also, of course, started watching The Big Bang Theory because everyone did. Yes. I don't know. At some point, like, two, I think it was 2013, maybe, I was sitting on my bed, and I was watching Sheldon or Leonard scribble something on their whiteboard, and I suddenly realized, like, hey, that stuff doesn't look super foreign to you, and you kind of understand what they're talking about. Like, maybe you don't suck at math and physics as much no. as you thought you did you don't <laughs> well I didn't know though so it was like age 30 31 or something and then 30 31 I started like just like going on the internet and looking at like Khan Academy videos and stuff like that I started taking uh, community college classes um, I was still working full-time but like taking night classes community mm -hmm. college just to test the waters and see if this if my hypothesis was correct I mean, it makes um, so much sense, right? Like, why not make sure it's what you want to do for a lot less money? Yes. And also, I didn't want to give up my job right away. What if I wasn't good at it, you know? And then yeah. I would have gotten maybe into, I would have started UW, and they don't really do just night classes because a lot of older people that start later in life with college, yeah. they do community college because they offer night classes. I did all of that 2014, 2015 rolled around, and I got accepted into UW Mechanical Engineering. I'm a mechanical um, engineer too, technically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah technically. <laughs> a lot of us are, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, um, I got accepted and that was a pretty good day. Uh, That's I was, awesome. I think I was like 32 or 33 at the time. And then uh, summer of 2017, I actually got an internship with NASA. Not sure how that happened. Did so you, weird. you worked for, was it JPL? Where did you work? No, I was in Huntsville, Alabama. 
That was an Fun. interesting one. Yeah. Yeah. I got into UW. I got out of UW and I got, I got a job. Um, it was a really good job. So I couldn't, it was a, a superb job yeah. off though. Yes. I ended up becoming a structural dynamics engineer. And the nice thing, the reason I got into that kind of stuff, uh, like vibration and stuff is because I was already into acoustics. So oh, yeah, it, yeah, it was just that one next logical step kind of, I just kind of gravitated towards that. Wow. Yeah. So then you got into I vibration. An engineer. Yes. And then I became you- an engineer all of a sudden. So, at age 36. I think that's awesome. Hey, everyone. As a quick break from our (laughs) scheduled content today, I just wanted to give a shout out to this new podcast I've been listening to. I'm fascinated with true crime. I watch all of the documentaries. I listen to so many different true crime podcasts. And a newer one on the scene is called The Podcast from the Crypt. It's hosts by Devin and Steph, or your Crypt Keepers. They are hilarious. I really enjoy listening to them. It feels like you're sitting in the room with them, which is particularly nice, especially now. They have really cool, fresh new content. They did an entire episode on urban legends, which was really interesting. A lot of them I didn't actually know. Their newest episode is actually about Ed Gein. Before I listened to it, I was like, man, Ed Gein is really popular. The Silence of the Lambs, if you've seen that movie, is inspired by him. It's kind of old news in the true crime world, but their episode had a really fun, fresh take. I really enjoyed listening to them. I highly recommend you check it out if you're a fellow true crime junkie like myself. Or if you're just in the mood to learn about something on the creepier side. And we actually follow them on Instagram. So if you go to our Instagram, but it is Rocket Science, and search, you can find them. I highly recommend you check them out. All right, so we talked about this earlier. We're going to talk about vibration today. I think it's going to be a really good one. Melanie's going to talk to us all about what she does in vibration testing. She's going to give us the good stuff. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to give you a very segmented history. It's a weird history. Do you want to hop into it? You ready to get going? All right. So normally when I do it, I really like doing the history. I also like doing the technical background or the technical description, but the history is really interesting. And normally you can just Google a history. You can just type history of parachutes, <laughs> like history of the Saturn V, and you can get a history. Normally you can just click on the Wikipedia article and that is a great place to start. I typed in the history of vibration and I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure what I was going to find on this, and there wasn't a ton of information, but the first thing I found that was useful was this paper called Vibration Tests, A Brief Historical Background. I would like to provide you with a spoiler alert. It is not so brief. (laughs) It is like a 30-page paper. But according to the paper, the first studies on shock and vibe were carried out during the early 1930s. This made sense with other information I found. The goal was to improve the behavior of buildings during earthquakes. And then I was curious about this, just as a side note. The famous San Francisco earthquake took place in 1906 and killed an estimated 3,000 people. So this is the deadliest earthquake in U.S. history. I thought that was kind of interesting. It would kind of make sense that after this huge earthquake in the following decades that they would try to figure out how you could prevent this from happening again. This paper goes on to discuss how this guy named M.A.B.O. developed something called the shock spectrum. I was really confused because the first thing when I thought of when I heard the name B.O., it's B.I.O.T., was the BO theory or BO's model. The official description, according to sciencedirect.com, is it describes wave propagation in a porous, saturated medium. And guess what? It's the same guy. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Same guy. Same guy. Uh, If his name name is BO, it's probably the same guy. I was like, there can't be that many people with this last name, right? (laughs) His name was Morris Anthony BO. That's what the MA is. And he was a Belgian-American physicist who was born in the year 1905. He did a whole lot of stuff, but we're going to focus on vibration 
obviously. Between the years of 1932 and 1942, he develops the RSM, or it's called the Response Spectrum Method for Earthquake Engineering. I actually wrote in my notes, I was like, Melanie, you can probably explain this better than me. Can you explain that this one, better than me? Um, actually, you know what? I don't do a lot with earthquake engineering, and I never I'm have. Not, that's- I'm not surprised, <laughs> yeah. Yes, because that's more of a, um, I mean, that's more of a civil engineering yeah. thing. I never okay. did civil engineering stuff. I did not either, and I was worried. I was like, am I going to embarrass myself if I try to explain this in front of you? I know but, that. I think I think earthquakes are more like Rayleigh waves because they're more surface waves. No, wait, was it? There's like different kinds of earthquakes too, depending on what is the root of the, what the cause of the earthquake is, that the math is going to be different. It's, it's really I mean, intense. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's yes. intense, but it's a whole different ball game and lower frequency stuff that we don't have to deal with. Yes, completely. Yeah. But essentially what I found is that RSM analysis can be utilized to estimate the peak response. So it would do displacement and stress mm-hmm. of a structure to a specific base motion of force. Essentially, it sounds like it's just a way to approximate what would happen to a material in different vibration environments. With base yes. input vibration, yes. My understanding is that it's only an approximation, but it's inexpensive. They use it for preliminary design studies. Mm-hmm. It's a good first cut to see. If it fails the first cut, then you probably need to go back to the drawing board. Yes. It then goes on to discuss how vibration testing became commonplace in aircraft, and then the natural progression from there would obviously be to go to rockets. But none of that was what I wanted when I first started this. <laughs> what I was, <laughs> It's all interesting, which is why I wrote it down and read it. But what I really wanted was I wanted, I was like, who figured out that vibration is something we need to worry about? Which essentially goes back, the whole point, the whole, if you were to very overly simplify vibration, you're looking for natural vibration. It all kind of all stems back to natural vibration. Who figured out that these materials at a certain wavelength will just vibrate to destruction? Because that's crazy, right? That's insane. It is insane. Who, who figured that out? And I had to do like, a whole lot of Googling. Actually, you said you Googled this too, right? And you also got yeah. nothing? Yeah, because like for, for the years that I've been interested in this and like been thinking about this and working with acoustics and everything, yeah. I never thought about Googling, hey, who figured out what a natural vibration is or like why stuff shakes itself apart at a certain yeah. vibration and why? And I never thought about it. And then we decided to do this episode and I tried to Google it and I couldn't figure it out. There was nothing. I was like trying to like, and you know that thing where you just try to rearrange how you're Googling the phrase? <laughs> we started natural vibration. Natural vibration origins. Discover. <laughs> like, like you're just like Googling. Discover natural vibrations. I don't know what kind of websites you found after that. So again, what I was really trying to figure out was where vibration theory originated and who discovered what natural frequencies were. Again, this is really tricky to find. After some internet digging, I finally hit the jackpot. I found this paper called The Origins of Vibration Theory, and it was published in the Journal of Sound and Vibration in 1990 by A.D. Dimaroganis from the Department of Mechanical Engineering at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. If you want to get really, and I mean really deep, into the history of vibration theory, read this article. If any of you have read Infinite Jest, it's a David Foster Wallace book. Melanie, have you ever read that? No. It's a very intense book. Something about the way this paper was written reminded me of Infinite Jest. Yeah, I don't know why. I was reading it. I was like, why does this feel familiar to me? It was almost like the cadence. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a really intense article, but it had what I was looking for. Vibration theory dates all the way back to the 5th century BC in Pythagoras. Yeah, it's the same guy the Pythagorean theorem was named after. And I did some more digging there. There's actually a debate whether he was the first to discover it. He had his hands in everything. 
Yeah, so many of these people did. Oh, Einstein, too. I, I find him in one of my things, too, when I was right? researching. I'm like, dude, le- leave some stuff for other people. <laughs> Someone else should get to discover something. <laughs> yes. It makes sense to me. Dates all the way back to 5th century BC, and this is what is often referred to as the period of classical Greece. I actually knew this because I had researched something else about 5th century <laughs> BC for this podcast, so I now know what the period of classical Greece is because of this podcast. For context, this was the time of many of the famous Greek philosophers, so Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and he wasn't a philosopher, but Hippocrates. Yeah, I know all these names because I had to take Latin class. Did you? Really? So that, if that sounds familiar, it's because it's the same time as all these people. And it kind of makes sense to me. That's why I couldn't find a ton of information on it, because it's a concept that, as a people, we have known for so long. That it wasn't a necessarily, at this date, on 1924, the rocket equation was discovered. It's such an old concept that it's almost yes. just become something that, as a society, we know. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to hop back to Pythagoras. He developed a system to measure sound frequencies of musical instruments, which made me laugh. Look at you, Melanie. (laughs) (laughs) You all start in music. Um, We all do. (laughs) And it kind of makes sense, right? I just think of those old school tuning forks. You hit it, it vibrates, and that's that's what makes the sound. That's the resonance right there. If you have a different shaped tuning fork, it's going to vibrate at a different frequency and give a different tone. That's that's the point of a piano. And piano yes. strings. Yep. Exactly. It would make sense to me that the first place they would realize vibration would be because of music. Yeah. It makes sound. They were smart. Exactly. It's also <laughs> something, something that we directly interact with yes. as humans. He then went on to conduct a series of experiments that used hammers, strings, pipes, and shells. I literally picture like a kid's toy. Uh, <laughs> yes. But I'm sure... <laughs> with tiny hammers hitting shells. I'm sure it was much more in-depth than that. The article goes on to explain more about this. I did not want to do that to all of you. <laughs> I just have this Greek guy with a big white beard and his toga. And like a like, tiny little hammer. Little <laughs> hammer and like, yeah, that's going to stay with me for a while. That's it's, it makes one. me laugh, right? It's yes. Good. Thank you. So <laughs> the main thing that he figured out here was that he determined that, and I even put this in quotes, natural frequencies are system properties and do not depend on the magnitude of the excitation. That's a good one to realize. Right? Would you like to explain to us? What they mean by that is just that something is not going to resonate at a certain frequency because you hit it harder. If you have a ruler or something and you put it at the end of the table and you slap the end of it and it starts vibrating, it's going to vibrate at a certain rate. It's just going to go up and down at a certain rate. It's not going to vibrate faster or slower the harder you hit it or the less hard you hit it. That's a really good metaphor. Yeah, it's going to stay the exact same no matter how hard you hit it. Yeah. It might deflect a little bit more, but the frequency is going to be the same. So if you yes. move the ruler back a little bit and you had a shorter cantilever and you did the same thing, it would vibrate a lot faster just because it's stiffer. But no matter how hard you hit it, it's still going to vibrate at the same frequency. It doesn't matter how, uh, how hard you hit it. Yeah, exactly. So. Perfect. It's, Thank it's, you. Yes. Yeah. It depends on the properties of the material, maybe the yes. dimensions and the length and the thickness and stuff like that. But yeah, it doesn't depend on, on the input. On the, yeah, on the magnitude of the excitation. Yes. Essentially. It does for nonlinear stuff a little bit, but let's just not get into that. Yeah, we won't worry about that. <laughs> Pythagoras really. wasn't worried about that. No, he was so, also not worried about it. 
this essentially serves as the foundation for vibration mm-hmm. theory. If you're interested in more of what is going on with the history of vibration, I recommend you check out this article. It will be linked in our sources. But I figured that was a good place to start for you. Yes. And again, like I feel like a lot of people don't really know that this is like a huge deal in engineering. I feel like, no. you know, when you when you think about like bridges and stuff, people get it because yeah. I don't know how many people write you, but if they start writing you about the Tacoma Narrows we Bridge. We have a few. <laughs> there you go. People always mention the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. Um, it's the Tacoma Narrows and it's Galloping Gertie are yes, the ones I think of. So. That was but, not a resonance, by the way. That was flutter, but let's oh, not get into the details. I yes. didn't know. Yes, the math is different. It's a limit cycle versus just a pure resonance. Oh, um, that was disputed great. for a long time. Now, at least you know that portion. I'm excited for you to talk to us all about this even more. But first, are you down yes. to take a little break? Yes, absolutely. We are back from our break. Melanie, yes. what did you have for dinner? I had a steak and a baked Ooh. potato with cheese and some Ben and Jerry's ice cream afterwards. What flavor? I went to the store the other day and accidentally saw the ice cream on sale. Ooh. Accidentally. What? It was, uh, you know how they have like the the, core, the ones with the core, whatever. Those are good. Yeah. Oh my God. Those are so, good. The brownie batter core and one with that the cheesecake good. core. And, that one's um, good too. The cookie dough one is also good. They're all good. I like them I all. haven't had that one yet. So that that's the next one I'm going to get. I'm, ice cream is, I love so it. So good. Yeah. I do too. You can go to the Ben and Jerry's factory. It's in Vermont. It's really fun. I, I would. I think if I ever went to Vermont, that would probably yeah. be the first thing I'd do. I don't really know Vermont for anything else. They have a whole like mile long tasting trail because Cabot (gasps) cheese is also up there. So you can eat a bunch of cheese. I think there's a winery, but I was young. But you like, I ate a whole bunch of cheese and then went toward the ice cream factory and had a bunch of little ice creams. It was pretty great. (laughs) It sounds perfect. It's very fun. I really like cheese also. And this was long enough ago that I actually didn't get cell phone service where we were in Vermont. And this is not a very remote place. It was just like, this was back when like not getting cell service was common. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I remember being in high school and I was like, we don't get cell service here. It was like the worst thing in the world. I was one of the last people to get a cell phone. I were you fought, really? I fought it for a long time because I was so used to just using the regular landline because that's how old I am. All right. Okay. Where so- were we? You are going to tell us all about shock and vibe. Oh, right. Yes, that's what us structural dynamics engineers do. I mean, we do a lot of different things also. Yes. It's, it's a quite a big term, but I'm still, like I said, I'm still very new to this job and to this field. So I'm a structural dynamics engineer. In general, we deal with shock and vibration, you know, and coupled loads that happen. You know, like the space shuttle was attached to its boosters and to mm-hmm. the actual rocket. If the rocket shakes that can be transmitted to the space shuttle and like it you know all of that stuff can happen you also in some cases you want to protect the payload from a lot of acoustic vibration and stuff like that yes especially the payload because that is what people spend a lot of money on getting into space unharmed so so the payload i always think of it as the stuff you're trying to get to space in very non-technical terms it is just whatever you would like to get into orbit Yes, which is, I I feel like it's mostly satellites these days. Yes, satellites. um, Astronauts could be considered payload, depending. Yes, human payload in that case, which they have very different specs. 
They do. Yeah. For good reason. Yes, for good reason. People should not be experiencing the same loads that non-people can experience. No, no, absolutely not. It seems kind of obvious when you break it down that way. When you do. But again, a lot of people just don't even think about these things. No. The way I always think about it is if you get in a car, you have to have a seatbelt and an airbag. If you're just transporting a bunch of cargo, you just throw it in the back. I do have a Tesla now. So every time I moved, I would have like stuff in the back seat or something next to me. And my car would just be like, beep, beep, beep. Someone's not buckled up. And I'm like, I can't, what do you want me to do? So So I just, I will like buckle it in. in. Yeah, that's exactly. (laughs) So you have like your storage bin next to you. You have to buckle it. Yeah. Because you want it to stop telling you to put the seatbelt on. And you're like, it's so. All right. Okay. I'm going to try to stay on topic now. I can do this. this. (laughs) All right. Yes. So what a lot of people underestimate with rocket, they always see like the rocket lift off and then it goes to space. And I was the same way. Two years ago, I knew nothing about rocket. Just zero. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I was never engineering kid. I was never the robot kid. I was, you know, I, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't grow up watching all the space movies and the sci fi movies. It was just a weird dynamic when I got into this job because I got interested in all of this stuff so late in life. You now have a whole library of media out there to experience. Yes, I do. So yeah, so rockets, there's different kinds. There's, there's four sources that can cause vibration on rockets, and that's acoustic, aerodynamic, mechanical, yeah, and mechanical, and then shock. I guess that's, that's just a different kind. Can you explain the difference between shock and vibe? Yes, mostly it, I mean, from a very simple point of view, it's just a shock is a transient event. It happens once, and it's very quick, and then it's done. And random vibration is kind of more of a steady state situation where it, it happens over a longer duration in time. So would shock be if you hit a pothole? Exactly. If your rocket hit a pothole. Okay. Or yeah. your car. Or yeah, your I'm car. more, yes. random vibe would be if you're just driving around on a You're just driving road. around and it might be, it might be a rough road. Okay. Yes. And then shock would be if that moment when you hit that pothole, because it would it's, be the outlier. Exactly. It's the outlier and the math that goes into it a little is, is a little bit different. It's like a step function, basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So sense. it's just, it's mathematically, it's, it's just a different principle. But let's get into those different kinds of sources that can yeah. that affect rockets. So, break it down for us. Break it down. The acoustics that come in, and people don't really think about that, but rockets make a lot of very, very, yes. very loud noise. Very loud. This, yeah. The launch of the Saturn V is one of the loudest recorded events. Yes, that's ignition overpressure is what that's called. It oh. ignites and then there, there's an overpressure that happens basically that comes out of the rocket engine. Mm-hmm. It bounces back off from the ground and travels along the rocket. Up. It's basically just, it's just fluctuations, air fluctuations. It's, it's just a pressure, but it's a very, very long pressure. And especially if you have very sensitive payloads, satellites or like anything like that, you have to somehow keep that under control or like isolate it very well. Yes, and the same with landing now. This is not a problem that rockets had previously because... Because oh, they never landed. Because they never landed. When you reland a rocket, you relight the booster. You, you relight the booster. I've never yes. thought about that. Yeah, me neither. And then the aerodynamic influences that, that it has. So that's just pressure fluctuations due to turbulent boundary layers. That can happen and then flutter around fins or on panels. Yeah. It's just like air streams that happen. Oscillating shock waves, if you cross any kind of MAC barriers, that can happen. Buffeting, gotcha. which is flow separation around sharp corners and around fins and stuff like that. 
And then a lot of times also, and this would be like in enclosed spaces within mm -hmm. the rocket plumbing, you know, all the high velocity flow through, through the piping that can happen through all the turbo pumps. That's, that's part of it also. So that's the aerodynamic part. And then we have the mechanical part, which that is mostly just comes from equipment on the rocket. It's from the engine, it's from turbo pumps and, and compressors. Okay, so um, that would be just physical things within the rocket causing. Exactly. Vibration. It's just, it's trying to gotcha. shake itself apart for some reason. And also so like transportation. A lot of people forget about I that. do. Yeah. I yeah. forget about that all the time. Yes. Especially if there's um, remnants of fluid in the rocket from like testing or something, and then it has to be oh. transported. It's laying on its side versus, mm -hmm. and then if and something, down. yes, I don't know if something gets shaken loose there, or there's valves that are oriented in a certain way and it gets so involved. So transportation is also a thing that they have to withstand. Yeah. And then mechanical releases, what I also didn't know for a very long time, is rockets are held down on a launch pad with bolts. They are. They are. Yes. Yeah. yes. Explosive I bolts. Yes. Explosive bolts. You so, wouldn't really know that. Yeah. No, you wouldn't. Why would anyone know that? No one knows that. Yeah. So those, those explode off and like quick disconnect and infringible joints, you know, everyone knows when the rocket... Um, has crossed into into space and then you see the explosion and the ring falling back down you know we all have that visual that we always see when that ring yeah. separates and falls down it's called a frangible joint which is basically just an, an aluminum zipper that explodes yeah in a exactly because if you think about it if you have all these stages you have to get them apart Yes, because and once so, the tank is empty, yeah. like it's dead weight and it needs to go. Exactly. And it's an yes. explosive event because they're, you want to keep them connected. They need yes. to stay connected for yes. exactly as long as you need them to. Exactly. And then they need to separate exactly when you need them to. And, yes. uh, and they use explosives for it. And if you think they about do. it, it's just all of these explosive um, events, they build up and they happen and there's components in the rocket that we need to keep the rocket going. Avionics parts, yeah. pumps and like everything and all of these components, they have to withstand all of this vibration and all of the shock events and everything. Even propellant slosh. Dumb. That's a lot of fluid that's sloshing around. That can yeah. actually mess with the navigation and control of a rocket. Oh, so propellant slosh is exactly what it sounds like. It's when you have propellant in a tank sloshing around. <laughs> exactly. There's just, there's so much going on. There's just a lot going on. And I think the biggest part of, of what our job is, is that we have to figure out how to make the rocket not fall apart when it tries to get into space. And yeah, the payload, I, obviously, because, yeah. but first we need the rocket to survive and <laughs> then we can deal with the payload. Yes. Yeah, I imagine the payload's um, tricky as well because it experiences every single one of those events because it's the last thing. If you have a multiple stage rocket, the payload will be the only thing that experiences like first separation, second separation, all of that. Yes, although it's usually so far away from the engine. Yeah, so like engine stuff, uh, unless it's a super small rocket with like super massive engines, which usually <laughs> I feel like they're kind of proportionate, you know, it's like if it's yeah. a smaller rocket, you have smaller engines. Um, old usually, rocket equation. Yes, the rocket equation. Usually what would happen is like the, the payload will be far enough away to not have too much influence, at least from that the engines sense. and the turbo okay. pumps. Um, but that always depends on what kind of rocket it is. But tell us about random vibration. Okay, random vibration is kind of like the biggest part. Again, shock is a big part and it has to survive. Yeah. But these shock events are usually so quick 
that a lot of times you don't really have to, not all the times, but you don't always have to take that into account for designing Rocky Component. I'm going to try to give a little bit of an overview of what happens with random vibration. It's very math heavy and very strange. The name random already kind of implicates that because it's random. So it's indeterminate. You can't calculate it in a deterministic way. You're trying to figure out what the random vibration environment would be. Exactly. So that you can prove that the rocket will survive it. Exactly. In random vibration, you can kind of think about it. It's like completely white light. So it's all the it's all the colors together make white light. And random vibration is kind of in that same way. It's all the frequencies all the time at the same time. Kind of like white noise. Yeah, I always think about it. Recording a podcast, I've become very sensitive to noises in my apartment that I wouldn't otherwise pay attention to. The sound mm-hmm. of the fridge running or my air filter, or traffic out on the street. So that would be the white noise in my apartment. Yes. But that would translate, if that was vibe, it would translate to the just the standard vibration environment that is always going. It's always going, exactly. So random vibration, very different from just a side wave or something, because a sine wave has a certain frequency. And music even, music is a periodic signal, because music is composed of different sine waves. And random vibration is just noise. It's just it's noise. random. Yeah. It's random. Its amplitude cannot be expressed in terms of deterministic mathematical functions, which is okay. a problem because we want to be able yeah. to figure out exactly what's going to happen and how much vibration is it yeah. going to experience and when. <laughs> My master's was all about system characterization, which essentially when you define behavior or something through an equation. Yeah. So we're, we're, I'm real big into the equation, yeah. <laughs> Which is why vibration is so hard, because exactly what you said, because there is no end-all, be-all equation that describes it. Yes. You can use the equation of motion for stuff, but that's a deterministic system. That's a determined system that you can calculate, you know, like a pendulum swinging and stuff like that. In terms of random vibration, we have stationary signals and non-stationary signals. I'm going to try not to go into that too much, but if a random signal is truly random, then when you take the mean value and the standard deviation and the kurtosis, which I think is like the, the third or fourth derivative or something of a randomized process, if those all stay the same over a certain amount of time or like forever... So if you take a signal, a chunk of data, and that's a random signal, and you Mm -hmm. you calculate the standard deviation and the mean and the kurtosis, and then you take the next chunk of random vibration noise and do the same, and all of those values always end up being the same, then you have a truly random signal. So if there's any kind of shift in the mean and the standard deviation, kurtosis, uh, et cetera, then it's not a truly random process. Oh, then it wouldn't be random because something else in the environment changed? Yes. Maybe there's a periodic signal in there that's buried in there and you didn't notice it before, all of that kind of stuff. The math gets really heavy, so I'm going to try not to go into it too much. It's not super helpful, but it is just very interesting because, again, I did not know about any of this stuff. I went down this whole hole because what is random? As people, we are almost incapable. If you ask people to select a random set of 10 numbers, they can't do it. It's just our brains cannot just randomly pick numbers. You can easily get down holes that would be like, random truly does not exist. There is no... It doesn't. It doesn't. Like, even random generators that you use for experiments, they're not truly random. No. Because (laughs) someone has to come up with an algorithm. Yeah. To pick random numbers. (laughs) To pick random numbers. So it's already not random anymore. If I'm going to pick five random numbers, I'll be like, okay, one. And then my brain will be like, well, I'm not going to pick one again because I just picked one. 
which yes. already means that it's no longer random. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can go you down. It's a really interesting thing. You should have just picked the one again, Anna. should have just picked yeah. the one again. Yeah. <laughs> and then if you're like me and you overthink everything, <laughs> if you're interested in that, please Google randomness. You can get down some really interesting statistical holes. You will be there for a while, so no. get ready for that one. <laughs> Grab a snack first. Grab a, yes. Grab a snack, a big but. one. Um, yeah, so we all know uh, Fourier transform. So my job mostly yeah. happens in the frequency domain. We don't really care about the time domain very much because we need to know how much the rocket is shaking at what frequency. And, and it doesn't really matter so much when it's shaking at a certain okay. frequency. We just need to know how much it's shaking. Okay, so what you're saying so, is like the timeline doesn't matter to you. It's just the intensity of the event. Exactly. Okay. Because, like, for us, it doesn't matter, like, when the rocket launches, you know, for the component yeah. to survive. We just need to figure out a way to mathematically describe what is happening to the rocket with, with vibration. What we use in our job mostly is something called PSD. It's a power spectral density. And it's yep. closely related to a regular FFT. It's a little bit different. And this is something I actually had to look up. And this is where Einstein kind of crept in again. He was kind of a, like a little bit of a side note. He was like the last name in the paper. So like maybe they just pulled him in to get more, <laughs> to get more visibility. I don't know. I don't but blame was, him. Yeah, it was Wiener Kinchin and Einstein okay. theorem. This Wiener guy, he came up with this power spectral density. And again, it's very closely related to FFTs. It's just that FFTs favor periodic signals with sign signals. Okay, I actually don't know what an FFT is. Oh, I'm sorry, fast Fourier transform. Gotcha. The Fourier transform is what you use to go from the time domain into the frequency domain. Yeah, if any of you are in engineering school, you'll probably take a class where they will make you by hand learn how to yes. do Fourier transforms. Yes. It's not that fun, but they are very useful. It was actually fun to me, which was a sign. <laughs> that was a sign. I'm not going to lie. I'm it's like, hard. Hey, yeah. You like doing Fourier transform by hand? Yes, you do. I'm like, okay. It's not easy. Yeah. yeah. No, it's not easy, but it's fun to me. But yeah, so PSDs, yes, PSDs are somewhat related to them. It's just that they favor noise. So if you yeah. do the Fourier transform on one signal and you do the PSD function on another signal, there's different outcomes. PSDs are the Fourier transform of the autocorrelation of a random signal. And the autocorrelation is basically just, it's a mathematical principle and you can use it to determine, like you basically use a signal and then use the same signal a little bit time delayed. You just, I don't, I don't even think, it's not like convolution because convolution is a linear process. And this one, it, you just kind of figure out how sim how similar are these two signals to each other. The two signals just time shifted. Again, if it's a truly random process, the the result is just going to be I don't know one. I, I don't yeah. even know. I've I've never I've never actually done the math behind this one. <laughs> but that's just what I assume. But PSDs, it's just units of GRMS, which is acceleration, but the RMS value, so the root mean square divided by hertz it goes by the bandwidth of whatever gotcha. you can do one hertz you can do a bandwidth of like 20 hertz or five hertz it's just going to be an amount of bandwidths that we look at in frequency if you looked at a plot of it the y-axis would be grms squared over hertz and the x-axis would just be frequency gotcha okay yes i apologize to all the listeners 
this was very exciting to me. But it's cool. It's, it's a, tricky. It's a tough one. It is tricky, but I feel very much at home in the frequency domain. So again, a sign that this was the, jo- the, the job. The job. Somebody I was has to. to. <laughs> yes. Because I do not. No. Most people don't. I've had, and it, that was a very weird experience to me. But I've had like engineers walk up to me to my table, uh, to my desk, like 20, 30 years experience. Like, can you explain to me why this is happening? I don't understand. I'm like, what? You have 30 years experience. Why am I explaining this to you? Like it made me feel very strange. And they're like, I just don't understand frequency stuff very well. And I'm like, why? Well, I also just think that's such a great deeper point here. You will be good at things that other people will not be good at. And other people will be good at things that you are not good at. That does not make you dumb. It just means that you did not naturally pick that thing up. It took me so long to think, like, if I wasn't naturally good at something, that that my my brain would be like, well, I must not be smart enough. Yeah. My statics class, I was not good at static. Just but not then you good. found your thing. Yes. And it's funny yeah. because usually people consider statics being easier because the math is so much simpler. Yeah. And I'm like, but it's like there's so much going on inside a bridge, like in all the beams, yeah. but you can't see it. Nothing no. happens. And I'm like, nope. when something moves and swings around, that resonates with me. It just makes more sense to me because I can follow its motion. I just wish, it seems so obvious. You're not good at this one thing. But to me, I yeah, needed to be good at everything. And so yes. I, Otherwise, you're not going to get a job, right? Exactly. You're no. still going to get a job. It'll be okay. You can yeah. do it. So how do I do my job? We can either predict these vibrational environments. We can use math models. We can do FEA models, which is a yeah. finite element analysis models that can predict certain things. The problem with that is that if you have really big models and very intricate models, you need a very, very, very fine mesh to calculate higher frequencies. Again, you just need a higher yeah. resolution to get higher frequencies. Meshing is, parts, it's like a soft skill of engineering. It's you like have an to, art form. It is. It's very difficult. Finite element analysis is exactly what it sounds like. You're essentially breaking something down into very small pieces, which would be your mesh, and you're running an analysis on each of these tiny small pieces, and then putting it together gives you the entire picture. Yes. The finer your mesh is, it's like pixels. Like, the smaller the pixel is, the better quality image you're going to have. And the longer it's going to take to calculate. Exactly. So you can end up with meshes with millions of parts, which means you're trying to run calculations on millions of little squares. Or whatever shape they are, yeah, which can take hours or days. Yes. What happens there is that a lot of times FEA or FEM, finite element models, will be used for more lower frequencies because we can determine those a little bit better with having not a rougher mesh, but an acceptable mesh that doesn't take 24 hours or like a week to run on a really fast computer. And then we can use something called statistical energy analysis, which is SEA, to calculate stuff in the higher frequencies. And then we kind of just put these things together and then we hope what we're predicting is correct. And the way we would usually prefer this to happen is we could build the model and predict it, but then we get some test data. So we build the rocket, get some test data, and then we can correlate that back to our rocket and see if our model was correct. At least part of it, even if we just model part of the rocket, get a little bit of data, build a small part of the rocket, and we can correlate that back. And then we have some kind of correlation that says, oh, so the other predictions we're making is probably right. It's commonly called anchoring your model. It's essentially when you confirm in the real world that what's happening in your model is right. 
Mm-hmm. And even if you can just do a portion, if a portion incorrect, then chances are the rest of it is at least, is ballparked correct. Yes. There's someone that once said, and I forgot who actually said that quote, is like, all models are wrong, but some of them are helpful. And yes. I, I think, yes, that is really actually correct. Because it's, there's really no perfect way to model behavior of what's going on in the real world, because there will always be an environmental variable that you did not think of or cannot account for. Or you get your boundary conditions wrong or like... Or you just mess up. Yes, I've done that Or you too. just mess up. Again, with like, you said that the, yeah. the, the FEA model, that it's an art form. If you mesh it, it with is. the wrong geometry mesh, like you can get different results out of it. It is just, it, get, it goes deep. Yeah. People get PhDs in just the effects of different meshings. They don't have to be squares. They can be triangles. Sometimes they're crazy shapes. That's why having rounded surfaces or tight corners can be really tricky. Because mm-hmm. then you end up with all these crazy, abnormal, non-matching shapes. Oh, the when you have the, the actual corners, you get uh, you get infinite. Yeah. You get the the infinities creep in, and then your computer yep. is like, "It's infinite," and you're like, "No, not really." <laughs> Please stop. Yes. Please stop How did I get here? Infinite. I don't have an infinite stress yep. at this part of my rocket. Yep, it's tricky. It's pretty tricky. Um, we always hope that we can just get real data. It's always nice when engine tests happen. That can give us some indication of what's going on. What we take is uh, accelerometer data. And I don't know if people know what accelerometers are, but they're just tiny instruments that can pick up the acceleration of something. I always think of Mythbusters when they would like throw the dummy off the building and they'd put accelerometers on it. What were they doing? I don't know. But if you've ever seen Mythbusters, they talk about accelerometers a lot. Well, maybe I need to watch more Mythbusters then. But accelerometers are in everyone's phone. When they track how much you walk, Fitbits, they all have accelerometers in them. Because it's a lot easier to record acceleration than it is to record displacement or velocity. They have velocimeters as well, but they're just not as precise. We like to use accelerometers. We slap them on rocket parts and pumps and engines. If you have a functioning rocket already that you can put accelerometers on, like on the outside skin, and then a bunch of them on the engine up in the payload area, we can take this rocket and then either, number one, go back and anchor our model, or we take that data, we process it, we do our FFTs and and PSDs functions on it, we get the results back, and then we have the responsible engineers that are responsible for certain components of the rocket, certain pumps or avionics boxes, whatever, what have you. They will come to us in the dynamics team and say, listen, I need to test and qualify this component so we can put it on the rocket, and we need to know that it'll survive its dynamic environment. And it's going to be different for different components. So if you're yeah. super close to the engine, We're going to take data from an accelerometer that's down by the engine. We'll calculate what that pump or that valve needs to survive. Again, Mm -hmm. this is where that comes in, where we say we don't care when it has to survive it. We just have to know how much it's shaking down there and at what frequency. Most of these are going to be random vibrations, but if you're super close to a pump inducer or a turbo pump, that's going to be going at the same speed all the time. That would be random vibration, but there's also a sine tone in there. Oh, that's interesting. So then you kind of use all that information to create the random vibe environment in which the test needs to be completed. Exactly. I think one of the aha moments I had two years ago when I started this job was if you have a valve, there are certain valves that they have springs in them to keep them closed or to open them or whatever. And a spring will have a natural frequency. 
because yeah. it, I mean, it's a spring. That's what it's supposed yeah. to do. It's, it vibrates. Just imagine you have a valve that's somewhere near one of those turbo pumps. It's supposed to stay closed, but the spring inside that valve has a natural frequency that is for some reason by coincident, exactly the same as that turbo pump. So you got to check for it, these things. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it might get excited because of that pump and then it's going to leak fuel or whatever is going uh, through it. Yeah. It's such a so. delicate ecosystem. It is. So avionics boxes, for example, they are more worried about high frequencies because they have all these little electronics. Yeah. Or them like the box even like physically shaking apart. Exactly. Those people are more worried about higher vibrations. It should maybe give us a range. We usually only look between 20 and 2000 hertz. Anything above that, displacements are going to be so small that it doesn't really matter. And anything below that, we probably won't experience or it probably just won't happen because 20 hertz is 20 vibrations per second yeah the units on hertz is one over second exactly we are the team that never has good news no one likes us even though we're no no it's the last thing you have to remember you're like ah vibe ah i've just signed my valve and all of my stuff oh no i have to i have to survive random vibe and then we always have to put uncertainty margins on top also yes You never know, especially when you don't have a lot of data or no data at all. If you only have the model, you usually have to put so much uncertainty margin on top, which just means you have to add a certain amount of dB to whatever level you already have. Just cover your bases. It can get really tricky. And you can start trying to isolate components, but that brings on it a whole nother animal. It's like one thing happens and then another thing happens and another thing happens. It's such a fun problem, but it's also frustrating because you want your rocket to go into space. It's one of the last barriers that I always forget about. Yeah. Can you actually talk to us about modal analysis a little bit? And it's modal with an M, not an N. No, (laughs) it's it's modal because it looks at the modes. Modal analysis is actually one of my favorite things. I've touched on it a little bit, which is why I wanted to hear about it more. It's really cool. I do really like it a lot. It's just not something that is done very much anymore. It's very time intensive and expensive. It is, yeah. Anyone listening, if you've ever seen, you know, that the square around plates where people have a speaker attached to it and then they put the sand on top of it and you turn it on and the sand makes the shapes. That's so cool. Yeah, so that's the Clatney plate. That's always what I bring up the first time because that's what people know. That is the perfect example of what a natural frequency of a material and a shape or a, or a thing is. Yeah. So you have this plate and you have an input. And this is not a random vibration input. This is going to be a, a certain sine wave input. Mm-hmm. That's where you can actually see the difference. You give it a certain input and then, I mean, you can do it with random vibration as well. But for the yeah. Clatney plate in specific, it's going to be a certain frequency. You can tell, oh, it's vibrating if you input 10 hertz, it's going to vibrate differently and make different shapes than when you input 200 hertz or 300 hertz. It's going to make different shapes depending on where it's clamped down, depending on how thick the material of the plate is, how, how big the plate is, all of these things. And those shapes that you will see, those are called mode shapes. Yes. Yes. Cool. That is something that we use also. So the math behind it is basically when you do modal analysis is you get the eigenvalues out of your math. People know eigenvalues and eigenvectors. The eigenvalues are just the natural frequencies and the eigenvectors are the mode shapes. Oh. Yeah. 
Okay. I know. I, I remember when that one clicked for me too. I'm like, oh, Sonia liked us so much more. That makes sense. Okay. <laughs> yes. Again, that is something that you can do with your FEA rocket model, or you can take, if you have a completed structure, a lot of times that is done for payload specifically. They look at payload adapters and stuff really closely because that is what the yeah. customer is paying for. It has to survive. It has to have the best sound isolation. It has the best mm -hmm. vibration isolation yeah. and all of that stuff. So a lot of times they will still do like a modal analysis for that, which means they, they'll have a payload adapter or something. We put a bunch of accelerometers on there and then we hit it with a little hammer. Cool. Or, or something. And then those accelerometers will pick up those vibrations at different spots. You have to record where you hit it with the hammer. And then it's just a transfer function. You know the input and you know the response. You can put that into a model also. And that will just show at what frequency your structure is going to vibrate in what shape. Cool. I, I really love doing it. I learned a lot about it when I did my NASA internship. That's when I got pretty deep into it. Very neat. I've done yeah. a little bit of it. It's cool because when you do a modal analysis, especially in FEA, it'll show you all the mode shapes. You're never going to see it do that. No, you will know. And it's also like people freak out when you show them the mode shapes. The thing that you calculate in them, it's not an actual deflection. You just get no. a shape. You can make yes. it deflect as much as you want, but yes. it's just a shape. It doesn't have an actual a no. number to it. Exactly. You can calculate that too, but you need a definite input yeah. for that. Exactly. So you'll see a bracket and it'll be like half bent over on itself. What's happening? <laughs> it's just representative of the mode shape. You would need a significant input to get it to deflect that much. You're never going to get that. Let's hope but not. Let's hope not. It's exaggerating it in parts so that you can see it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I am so lucky that I got into the whole rocket situation. It's not something that I ever even hoped for because I feel like that's such a hefty goal. I just kind of got lucky and I kind of slipped into it. We all kind of got a little lucky. I did too. Yes. Yeah, we did. But it's yeah. just it's so interesting. There's well, so much going on with rockets. I just want everyone to know how cool rockets are. I get it now, nine-year-old self. Why did no one tell me? Well, I think it also brings it down to be like, it's, it is an attainable goal. It, it feels so lofty when you're far away from it, but yeah. I think there's some truth in taking things one step at a time. You really do. Like, this stuff is everywhere. Vibration stuff, it's in airplanes, trains, cars, especially cars, because everyone yeah. uses them. When you ride a bike, you probably have a shock absorber on it, because if you, you don't, probably, it's awful. If it you've is. ever ridden an old school bike, it's awful. Even it's, just on the road, it hurts. It goes to your hands. Yes. Yeah. Old cars. Old cars oh. that didn't have super good shock absorbers yet. Or have you ever moved out or put a whole bunch of stuff on a cart, watching it bounce around? You're like, please don't fall off. Please don't <laughs> please fall off. Don't please fall. don't fall. Please don't fall. Yeah. Yes. I just always think when I move, I try to take as few trips as possible. So I like load way too much stuff on this cart. <laughs> yep. Like, thank you so much for doing this with me today. I had so yeah. much fun talking to you. Yeah, me too. Maybe we'll we get to so talk much. in person yes. again someday. Someday. <laughs> I know. This has been so good. I'm very um, happy. And I, I oh. just, I love your podcast. I feel so You're honored. You're so nice. Thank you. I love, you have, actually, now is the perfect time. You have such great videos about vibration, which is why it occurred to me to ask you, scrolling through my social media, and you post, you have a whole series, right? It's different parts of videos where yeah. explain vibration. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, oh it, my God, I bet Melanie <laughs> would do this. <laughs> yes, They're ma really cool. Yes. But yeah. Let's do our sources, and then you can tell everybody where they can find you. Okay. 
it was funny because when I read through your sources, I'm like, half of these were mine as well when I was started Googling. For the dynamic testing stuff, I found a really nice little summary paper that was from NASA, and it was called Dynamic Vibration Testing Design Certification of Aerospace Systems, which it kind of just goes all, yeah. like, what's the difference between uh, development testing and uh, acceptance testing and qualification testing, and what are the margins that you have to keep all of that stuff? And then the same thing you had, random vibration, a brief history. A not-so-brief history. A not-so-brief <laughs> history. And then there's vibrationdata.com. If you've ever looked for a MATLAB code to calculate anything for vibrations, it's probably yes. his. And then for the definition between PSDs and FFTs, I found a source, and it was from www.ap. And uh, if there's more interest in it, uh, just a general interest in explanations for anything vibrations and testing and all of that stuff, especially aerospace stuff. There's a page called dataphysics.com, which is actually a company. They help with data recordings and all of that stuff, but they have a lot of just general information on there. It's a really good source for people that want to get their feet wet or just want to read up on it a little bit. That was awesome. Yep. All right. I have kind of a grab bag here. Vibration tests, a brief historical background, which was a paper... I just found a website that also discussed a brief history of vibration. None of these were that brief. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I found a Wired article that discussed that the San Francisco earthquake it was the deadliest earthquake. I found a paper called the 70th anniversary of the BO spectrum. Oh. Which is that RSM spectrum I discussed earlier. It had its mm -hmm. 70th anniversary in 2003. Yeah, I know. A long time going. And then I was an article, the sciencedirect.com article I quoted about BO theory or a BO number. Uh, the Wikipedia page on Morris Anthony BO. <laughs> Most of my sources are just about this guy. <laughs> He's an interesting He's, guy. He is. That's for certain. I have another paper from, I found on MIT's website about response spectrum analysis from sciencedirect.com. It's the one that I got most of my information from, The Origins of Vibration Theory by A.D. Dimar Oganis. And then I have a page from wikipedia.com about the history of the Pythagorean theorem. That's really great. Do you know um, your, the Atlas V um, yes. episode you did? You mentioned, oh, yeah. you mentioned that they didn't do any component testing on it. No. Wait. Isn't that crazy? I was rollerblading at the time. I almost fell over. Because I'm like, I got so startled. Yeah. Yeah. My rollerblades don't have like the stoppers. Oh I no! Almost, so I'm like, what? What? Yeah. How, how did they get that rocket off the ground? I don't even understand. We had to keep digging to make sure it was real. I did the same thing. I'm like, yeah. I can't keep rollerblading. I have to go home and Google <laughs> and make sure that this is correct. Yeah, it's crazy. <sighs> There was but, too much excitement. No more rollerblading while I listen to your podcast. That's too dangerous. It's a hazard. It's a, it's hazard. a hazard. Well, I'm happy you liked it that much. I did. I love them all. But you're so nice. Mm. We have so much fun making it. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. You can find Mel on Instagram at 2inkfinity and beyond. So it's the number two and then ink, I-N-K-F-I-N-I-T-Y and beyond no spaces. And then you can find her on Twitter at Mel2Infinity. So M-E-L-2-Infinity. 
And then, as per usual, you can find us on Instagram at But It Is Rocket Science. You can find us on Twitter at But It Is RS. You can find our Facebook page, But It Is Rocket Science. And then we have our website, But It Is Rocket Science.com. If you enjoyed this, please check out our website. If you want to learn more about us, check out our website. And then you can actually contact us. So if there's anything you want to let us know, if we've said anything wrong, if there's anything you'd like to learn, if you just want to tell us you like the podcast, please send us a message on our Contact Us page. And then if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcast. It would mean a lot to us. Since you're here, would you yeah. like to do the ending with me? I'm sure, sure. Hannah will happily lend yes. her torch to you. We can do it. Until next time, Space Cadets. T minus three, three two, two, one, one. lift off. Woo, you did so good.